Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is A School for Fools, written by Sasha Sokolov and translated from the Russian by Alexander Bugoslavsky. It was originally published in 1976. By turns lyrical and philosophical, witty and baffling, A School for Fools confounds all expectations of the novel. Here we find not one reliable narrator, but two unreliable narrators, the young man who is a student at the School for Fools and his double. What begins as a reverie, with frequent interruptions, comes to seem a sort of fairy tale quest not for gold or marriage, but for self-knowledge. The currents of consciousness running through the novel are passionate and profound. Memories of childhood summers at the dacha are contemporaneous with the present, the dead are alive, and the beloved is present in the wind. Here is a tale either of madness or of the life of the imagination in conversation with reason, straining at the limits of language, in the words of Vladimir Nabokov, an enchanting, tragic, and touching book. We are joined by Jose Vergara, an assistant professor of Russian at Bryn Mawr College. In 2021, he published a book called All Future Plunges to the Past, James Joyce in Russian Literature, which I imagine will be highly relevant to our discussion today. Yeah. Uh, welcome, Jose. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So what made you uh, pick this book for our discussion? It's, it's definitely one of my favorite books. I think it's a challenge as we were discussing before getting started here. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I just think Sokolov is he's kind of a, a writer's writer. Yeah. And I think he deserves more attention. People, Russian writers certainly know about him and he's a big influence on contemporary Russian literature. But I'm not sure how many people actually read him. And now that we have mm. these two translations of his, his first two novels, A School for Fools, and then his second one, Between Dog and Wolf, that were published a few years ago, I think he should, he, he definitely deserves more attention and the things he does with language are just so incredible and always kind of overwhelm me. So I'm just trying to proselytize, I think. Gotcha. Did you encounter his work in a scholarly capacity or in your own reading? My first encounter with him was in graduate school when I was, it was between my prelim exams and putting together my dissertation proposal. And I was looking for, I had picked a topic, a general topic of James Joyce and Russian literature. And I was looking for some other books and other writers that might fit the bill. And I think someone suggested him. So I took a trip to to Dublin, to Ireland, actually, and brought this book along. And I remember just having this really visceral response to mm. it. And I was just blown away starting to read this and feeling like this was perfect. It was meant to be. It was meant to be that I was reading it in Dublin, Joyce's Dublin. And it just seemed perfect for, for my project. But, you know, personally, it was just kind of the sort of thing that I really enjoy. Sure. Have you read any of his other books? Yeah, yeah. So he's, you know, he's often called the Salinger of Russian literature, of contemporary Russian oh, literature, at least. Okay. He wrote these three, I, I think stylistically, there's very little overlap, but he wrote three novels, A School for Fools, Between Dog and Wolf, and in Russian, Palisandria, which is like the epic of Palisandr. Mm. It was translated as astrophobia. They're all very different, all challenging in their own ways. But after 1985, he published very little. He has published very little. There's been some essays, and those were collected. A few short pieces here and there, and done some interviews. But he just hasn't published that much. I'll make a plug and brag a little bit that a colleague, Martina Napolitano from Italy, and I did a special issue in a journal on Between Dog and Wolf a couple of years ago. And... We asked him to do an interview to answer some questions anyway. And instead, he, he gave us, for publication in this journal, a new proem 
it's not a prose poem, but like his <laughs> creation or this that's incredible style, a mix of prose and poetry. Yeah, we were not expecting that at all. But it's this long, a few dozen pages long piece, and we got to put it into this special issue that we put out. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I see what you're saying. So he's the kind of guy, if you ask him for an interview, he's like, I will not answer your questions, but I'll give you a prose <laughs> poem. Apparently, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, we, we felt super, super lucky and fortunate to, to get that kind of response. Sure. Yeah, that's amazing. So we usually talk a little about the author's life, and he certainly has an interesting one. He was born abroad in Canada because his father was a Soviet diplomat. And just three years after his birth in 1946, his dad was expelled for spying. So the family moved back to the Soviet Union. And apparently he made attempts to leave the country as a young man, but finally made his way out in 1975. He had completed a draft of this book, School for Fools, a few years prior to that. And it was not formally published, but distributed via Samizdat. His wife at the time, who was a German citizen, smuggled the manuscript out of the country, and then it was eventually picked up in the U.S. by this publisher of lost 20th century Russian literature. And as we've alluded to, he's put out a handful of other books since, but he's not that interested in pursuing publication in a a rigorous fashion. But nevertheless, this book has garnered him a lot of acclaim. And he was awarded the Pushkin Prize and the Andre Bely Prize, two of the most prestigious awards in Russian letters. Are there other comparable artists who have, based on a relatively uh, slim bibliography, been able to achieve such stature? In Russia? Yeah. That's a good question. I'm I'm not sure. No one immediately comes to mind, though I'm sure there are some examples I'm, I'm forgetting about. Mm. I, I think, in general, he's not the only one, broadly speaking, but I think in general, it's rare, right? We think of writers who achieve great acclaim as artists who are publishing regularly, or at least writing regularly and getting it out there and build up this huge body of work. And to my mind, there's something special about this kind of rarefied distillation of what he's his art, right, that he managed to put out these three pieces, three main pieces, and kind of satellite works around it, the shorter ones in the essays. And it's all all about language, all about mm-hmm. inspiration of unusual techniques and unusual approaches. And certainly when he published, or when he was writing these things and getting them out in uh, 70s and 80s, it was a breath of fresh air, certainly in the Soviet Union and Russia. There were other writers like Aksionov and Andrei Bitov who were Contemporaneous, certainly, beat of slightly older generation a little bit, but they were attempting new things in literature and certainly moving away from socialist realism and what was necessary in order to be published at the time, at least widely and to be approved. So in his case, I think it's just the quality and how he kind of concentrated these core ideas, values of his into these these works and put them out there and resonated with writers in particular, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask... Talking about the socialist realism, I mentioned to you that we're reading Stalingrad for that coming up. Mm-hmm. It's very funny to, as I'm reading Stalingrad, going back and forth between that sort of socialist realism mindset and Sokolov's, you know, abstract madness. So were those the writers that you would say are the most comparable stylistically to Sokolov? Sort of. I think from Bitov, he took, and this is this has been noticed and, and written about in the scholarship, that from Bitov, he took this kind of desire to, to express things anew, to experiment stylistically and formally, kind of useful approach to literature and to, to get away from the mm. stale forms. But stylistically, in terms of the content, they are quite different. What he says okay. is his, his main influence is Nikolai Gogol. 
mm-hmm. going back sure. to the 19th century. He, Sokolov has said many times that really 19th century literature is where he comes from, that he considers himself a contemporary of Gogol and Pushkin, Russia's national poet. Sure. And certainly with Gogol, this love of language and how letters and sounds can generate ideas or characters even, I think he's really pulling from that. So I don't know, maybe surprisingly, we, we do have to look back to the 19th century and turn, turn to Gogol to see someone that, that's comparable. There's certainly other writers after, as I've kind of alluded to, who have picked up Sokolov's lessons, the lessons of the, the School for Fools. Mikhail Shishkin, in particular, who's unsurprisingly also one of my favorite writers, Russian writers, <laughs> taking a lot of these experiments and combinations of past traditions and past forms and, and playing with them and seeing what, what happens. Nice. Well, the other thing we talk about is the cover art. In this case, oh God, I love this cover. It's called Beasts by Pavel Filonov. Filonov? Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's painted in the naive style. It shows abstracted animal figures in a city landscape. Felt apropos given that the book's narrator, or the split narrators, is himself wandering through time and space in an absurdist fashion. Filonov himself was an avant-garde painter in the early 20th century Russia. He refused to sell his work to collectors in hopes of gifting them to a Russian museum to create a study of his thought. He did this despite the fact that Soviet authorities forbade exhibitions of his work. So, not a great career plan. But (laughs) sadly, his staunch principles led him to poverty and starvation where he ultimately succumbed to it during the siege of Leningrad, having never achieved his goal. However, I I think his work is still affecting. I remember when you sent us that this is the book you wanted and I, we, we uh, like looked it up and we saw that cover and was just like, wow. It stands out in how strange and humorous and off-putting, but still enjoyable. <laughs> I'm trying to find the best words for it. I think that's true. There, there's something, I think you put it right, off-putting. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> um, I think, I think the, the, once you get into it, the, the book, if you don't know what you're getting into, it could be a little off-putting, but there's, there is something charming about it, right? And this I 100% agree. narrator yes. is sweet in, in certain ways. And I'm not sure if that sweetness is in the cover necessarily, this, this beast, a kind of gorilla figure, I think. Yeah. But there's something appealing to you about the strangeness. The, the colors are all very sweet. It's like light blues and sort of maybe... Childlike almost. Yeah, yeah. So I think it really fits that sort of feeling well that you're describing the book where it is challenging and abstract but at the same time there's this sweetness and sort of silliness and lightness that also guides it as well right absolutely how did the painting um speak to you as someone that read the book you know i i i knew this was coming i know know this is part of the the unburied books methodology i'm not sure i (laughs) I, i'll be i'll be honest i i wasn't no offense to nyrb or or the artist, but I'm not a huge fan of the painting. I, I like his work in general. This one, I wasn't sure. I, I mean, I can see, you know, the, the connections with the childlike quality and the, the narrator is of indeterminate age and mm-hmm. uh, in, many, in many regards. We could kind of see the background as maybe a school and there's the fence. There's kind of yes. thematic connections here. Just personally, I'm not sure if this is <laughs> my favorite painting necessarily i can see why it was it was chosen though sure. and, and see the connections yeah did you first read it through the nyrb series was this the cover of your first reading no um i read okay. it in the in the artist translation and then in the russian as well artist is the publisher you mentioned mm-hmm. Kasia. this amazing publishing house that was established in in ann arbor by carl proffer who published all sorts of emigre 
Russian writers and writers, Soviet writers who, who were sending their works abroad for, for Tommy's not abroad publishing. And I think that cover, I think both of those are just cloth covers. There's no cover art. Mm-hmm. It speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I just first like this cover was imbued into my mind when I read it. So I was wondering yeah. if that was similarly your experience. That's cool. What, what did you think of it? I actually really like the painting. Yeah. And I think it set me up well for the book, which as you described, like this is like a style you really like. This isn't necessarily like my favorite kind of book style, but there, like we, we talk about, there is this like lightness and sweetness. And I find the, we'll get to this later, but I find like his romantic feelings for Veta as sort of like this thing that kind of like held it all together for me. And I just absolutely enjoyed reading. And I loved his use of language and also the the translators notes yeah the way they played with it too it was really fun mm-hmm. so we've circled this idea of of the language and you you say in an article you wrote which is fantastic and we'll link it in the description below that language is the true hero of this book uh could you tell us a little bit more about why you think that is mm-hmm. sure yeah i'd love to uh, it's not i can't claim it's my original idea unfortunately it comes from Sokolov certainly and and plenty others have written about it in different ways but I think one really good example which I can pull up here and and maybe read and I I think some of this gets lost in translation or it's not as clear at least but it's on on page 12 for those who are following along I guess near the end there's these, these moments of stream of consciousness essentially where the punctuation drops away and just kind of flows out there and they're often related to Vieta and the, the love this character, the narrator has mm-hmm. for, for this woman. But at the bottom-ish of this page, last third, but the branch is asleep having folded the flower petals and the trains that stumble on the rail joints won't wake it up for any reason and won't shake off even one drop of dew. Sleep, sleep branch permeated with creosote in the morning. Wake up and bloom, later finish blooming, you pour your petals in the eyes of the signal posts and dancing in the rhythm of your wooden heart, laugh at train stations, sell yourself to those who pass by, or depart, cry and shout, getting naked in the mirrored compartments. What's your name? I'm called Vietka. I'm a branch of Acacia. I'm a branch of the railroad. I'm Vieta, impregnated by the gentle bird called Rosignol. I'm pregnant with the future summer and with the crash of the freight train. Here, take me, take me. I'm wilting it anyway. That's quite inexpensive. At the station, I cost no more than a ruble, and I'm sold by tickets. And if you want to ride just like that for free, there will be no inspector. He's sick. And so on and so on. But so what's happening here, which again isn't necessarily clear, maybe in the in the English, Sokolov <laughs> <laughs> and the, the narrator are, are playing with with sounds. So this character Vieta, who isn't, I think even on this page, it's not clear that she's going to be a main character, mm-hmm. as far as there are characters in the book. <laughs> Vieta Vietka, the kind of diminutive nickname form, means branch. In Russian, mm, okay. So it starts with this Vieta, the the branch Vietka, and then becomes I'm a branch of Acacia. It's a railroad branch. It's the branch of the plant, and then it's Vietka, mm. the character. And this happens several times throughout the novel that a certain sound will get picked up and be, you know morph, transform into a character, and become kind of embodied into this a, a new figure that the the narrator interacts with or imagines that he's interacting with. In this way, in in this way everything is kind of rooted in language and sound and it's all just sort of this meta exploration of what sound and language can do yes definitely the book felt very musical mm-hmm. like i i could you could almost hear like a soundtrack underneath it of like 
bizarre noises coming from a train yeah, yeah. screeching by or you know the river flowing and the way that the natural imagery of the river and the trees and the water lily is combined with the city was really interesting and even though it is very disorienting you have images that that the narrator returns to that mm-hmm. give you a sense of like a patchwork of something co- coming together i'm not sure if if like it all comes together like it all has to mean something I, i'm not sure if that's the point of what he's doing he's maybe disassembling that idea but i found that very satisfying yeah i'm curious which which images kind of resonated with you or stuck with you and what what meaning did you pull out of all this if, if any i think this and this is something maybe you could bring more background to but the dacha oh, this God. it's always like going going back to like this russian cultural association that they have with the country house the escape and they're always kind of maybe they're traveling to the dacha i'm going to meet this person there and and then we're in a school and and it's like a back and forth but this is almost like a a north star or like some something that people are magnetically drawn back to like this retreat from normal life Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure what meaning i necessarily ascribe to it i think this is a book i'd want to read like five times before i tried to say like what it meant (laughs) (laughs) especially like when you talk about the translation and how there's all these subtleties that even though there are a lot of footnotes in this edition you're you're gonna miss something you just simply can't get them all but like yeah I, i think that creativity is for this author and maybe for a lot of people living under the Soviet Union, they're retreating into their imagination or into a private internal world, even if they're not like an artist in a traditional sense. Mm-hmm. A lot of people find some solace in like the, the landscape that they create within themselves if the external world maybe doesn't accept them as they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think, I think that's absolutely on point here. And I think it speaks to the kind of two layers uh, or two levels here that certainly yeah. there's a retreat into the imagination and you know one way to look at the book is that it's all all imaginary <laughs> none of this actually happened yeah. um, this character student so-and-so just like dylan so-and-so here <laughs> i appreciate that it's really nice i always change my name to be something according to the book that we're talking about i've never had someone mention my <laughs> call name so thank you <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's potentially making up everything, right? There's unclear when things are happening. He's talking to people who have already died and has this mixed up understanding of time and memory. Talk, talking about that, like the imagery that really stuck out to me was just the repeated use of skeletons or skulls uh-huh. and how like they were just as alive as the people that were imbued with them in their body when they were physically alive. And I love how it would go back and forth between you know, especially with Savile, mm-hmm. how he was simultaneously a skeleton and yet he was still alive walking across like the platform or f- almost floating as it's described in the book. And that that's what one of the main things that stuck out to me. In your reading, though, there was something I wanted to talk about, which was, I can't remember exactly the French translation, but they translate Nightingale into French when they discuss the bird on the branch. Uh-huh. And I was looking at the footnotes and it says in... The original Russian, he uses the English nightingale as a sort of linguistic flourish. And here, he, he's the English translator. Who's who's the translator of the book? It is Alexander Bugolovsky. Bugolovsky. Mm-hmm. 
Bugoslavsky. Bugoslavsky <laughs> decides to, as he's writing it in English, to change the English Nightingale in the original to a French translation of it to continue that sort of linguistic flourish, even if it's not the same way that it was written in the original, which I found interesting. Because you read this book in Russian too, correct? Mm-hmm. What do you think are the main challenges for the translator of a book like this that is so imbued specifically with the language? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I've, I also had to translate a little bit for, for my book. Putting wow. that message, which, which, and I think, you know, going back to it, I, when I first had to do it or chose to do it, because I could have used a translation, I just didn't think. I just dove in, maybe, maybe. And, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just do it and see what happens. But then, yeah, I started thinking about the challenges. And, it, you know, it's different. It's for a scholarly purpose, not a publication like this. But yeah, I, I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, sound play, you know, that you have to find these equivalents or just jettison them and, and acknowledge that you won't necessarily have the same sort of play with Vietka and Branch. Mm-hmm. The Russian can cover the railroad theme, can cover the kind of nature, natural theme with the branch of the, the plant and the name, but the English, you can't accomplish that. There's something similar with the, the literature teacher at the school, mm-hmm. her name, uh, and Boguslavsky mentioned this and then mentions this in the notes, is kind of it collects it's formed out of a Russian word and then a name, a patronymic, so the kind of middle name that's formed from her father, father's name, and then the last name. So in English, she has to find an equivalent for that. Uh, so the, that's, I guess, one challenge. Another one, I think, is the, I don't know, it, reading the book again, <laughs> yet again this time, <laughs> something that was kind of striking is it seems like, in, in the Russian, it's generally like this as well, sort of flat for most of the time. The narrator even though there are these many voices, it's everything kind of sounds the same, which makes sense because it's potentially all from the same mind. <laughs> um, but then there are also these moments, especially I think the the stream of consciousness moments where student so-and-so starts thinking about his love for Vietka and the syntax breaks down, the punctuation mm-hmm. the way, those sorts of things. And it becomes quite poetic and musical, mm-hmm. like you're saying, Cassia. And I think achieving that is its own challenge, of course, with any, any sort of poetic prose. And, you know, to maybe finish answering this, this question, what I was saying earlier is in, in an essay, Sokolov wrote about his desire to elevate prose to the level of pro- poetry. I mean, called this poetry, praesia, so poetry and prose put together. <laughs> and I think uh, achieving that is, is certainly a challenge. How do you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Translate that into to another language. Boguslavsky is Polish himself, and he, he's translated Sokolov's, these first two books, at least, into Polish as well as into English. Oh, okay. He's kind wow. of a, a madman in that way. <laughs> yeah. Fittingly, yeah. yeah. Online, it said, like, Sokolov is about as untranslatable of an author as you can get. Do you think there are books that are untranslatable? I don't... I, I mean, I say this as not uh, not as a translator. I've done a little bit of translation, and I would like to do it more when I have time someday. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I mean, th- there are always challenges, of course. But Joyce has been translated into Russian into many languages. So, yeah. you know, mm. there's a challenge here. I think it just takes the right brain and, and the right confidence, and, and maybe awareness of your ignorance, and being willing to experiment and to to really take on these, these these challenges and find alternatives, you know, mm. let go when it's when particular pieces maybe are impossible. 
but a, a whole piece, a whole novel, I don't think is necessarily untranslatable. That's kind of where we landed when we were talking about it. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think in this book too, because it is so much about language and about playing with language and taking it apart, the translator and the footnotes of the translator become like another character in the book mm-hmm. when you're reading it in translation, which is the kind of thing that Sokolov would have loved probably. <laughs> He's really like, oh, I missed a trick. I should have done that in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I can't remember if he mentioned it. I think he mentions it here in his introduction, uh, Boguslavsky and well, he collaborated with Sokolov on, on these translations and shared some ideas and wine, I think, going over <laughs> the translations. So I think that, you know, that's another benefit here or a nuance that we can take into account that he's, he's been able to work with the author himself, who, who I should say is, is really generous and open to these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And that makes it more, more translatable, maybe. As a side question to that, do you think this book could be translatable to like the screen or to the stage in some way? Because that's another thing yeah. I hear people say a lot where it's like, this book could not be translated into, mm-hmm. you know, another medium. Yeah. Do you think that there's any way this book could be made into another form? I, I, I would I would love to see a film. I don't know who would do it. Do you have any ideas? Yeah. I was thinking a lot about the Portuguese director Raul Ruiz. Uh-huh. when I was reading this, but he passed a few years ago, so it could never happen, but I thought well, he could be a really good... As we know, there is no, there's no death. No oh, yeah, of course. Exactly. He's, and actually, that comes, up, that comes up a lot in Raul Ruiz movies, so sure. <laughs> that works pretty well. And it, it, was, it has been adapted to the stage. I, I haven't seen a performance. Oh, wow. As a play? Because I kind of under, yeah. I, get, I, I envisioned it more as a ballet if it was in the stage. Oh, wow. Yeah. When we talk about it mm. very musically. Like, oh, I, I listened to a lot of Rachmaninoff piano songs when I was uh, reading this, so that uh-huh. might be why. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, I, I can't recall any sort of well, ballet or musical adaptations. Sure. But uh, I, I think there was one, if I'm not mixing things up, there was one made during peak pandemic and they, they did it online. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. I could see it as like a one-man show, <laughs> like where he's constantly like, putting on different costumes and yelling at himself. Like, I could totally see that, yeah. Yeah. Lastly, when we talk about the language, given your expertise with Joyce as he relates to Russian literature, what sort of overlap do you see between these two authors? Certainly in the language, and Sokolov, he's given mixed messages. Uh, Not not to me necessarily about this, but in one interview he said that he didn't read Joyce at, at this point. But in at least a couple other places, he said that Joyce and, and Poe and some other Western writers were influenced and were the kind of writers that he was going to in order to define these innovations at a time when Russian literature was, Soviet literature was stagnating. Mm. So I think, yeah, again, returning to the language, this experimentation with stream of consciousness, I, this is, I think, a kind of late entry in that tradition or later entry, this experimentation with stream of consciousness written about it that it's, it's kind of a parody of what that modernist device is. I think formally, we haven't mentioned this yet, but chapter two, which is... Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about chapter two. <laughs> yeah, everything else is a shift in perspective. Yes. And that's not specific to Joyce, but again, the kind of willingness to experiment, I see overlap there. Thematically, this was the kind of through line of my book, thinking about writers who turned to Joyce and were engaging with Joyce's idea about paternity and lineage and literary and biological mm, heritage. Mm. Those sorts of things are, are the ones that I've, I've noticed. 
fascinating. The narrator himself is understood to be split into two people. It has been suggested that this is sort of an expression of his schizophrenia or disassociative identity disorder. And the book plays on these associations between madness and imagination. Why do you think Sokolov decided to bifurcate the narrator's consciousness? And how do you see it adding to the narrative in this way? What do you think? Ooh. (laughs) At first, I didn't really pick up on the idea that this was a bifurcated consciousness. So I read it very much as like he was telling the reader what he was essentially doing because there's a lot of you tenses a lot of second person descriptions in there as he he is kind of talking to himself and so i thought that the way he uses a split consciousness is interesting because i felt like i was sort of imbued as student so and so more than i could have been otherwise if it was just a single narrator which given his preference for exploring language and breaking the wall between author and reader, I found it to be effective in that way. Yeah. about you, Cassia? I also didn't necessarily notice it immediately. I tried to not read the back cover or anything about this book before going into it because I had heard that it's like kind of wild and I just wanted to let it wash over me. But once I realized that this is like one of the main scholarly paradigms that's like put on the book, I think it's, it's that split self that you have to be for the state or for an educational institution or in your social relationships with your family or with the teacher that you love. Like we all have at least two selves, probably many, many more, an infinite number of selves potentially. And I think that for the author's preoccupations, that's a really helpful device to use to, to get those ideas across. Yeah, I think that's the case of all of that. If we also look at the epigraph, or there's three epigraphs, and the last one mm-hmm. is from Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson. The same name, the same contour of person. It's, it's a, another story of potentially a, a twin or a, a lookalike sure. doppelganger, whatever, this dual self. And throughout the whole book, uh, Sokolov is playing with this, this idea, right, of someone who's wild and free and imaginative, and then mm-hmm. on the other hand, another self who is more rational, I guess, or, or reasonable or um, mm. connected to the institutions here, the school, the state, who are all about reason and tampering down this wild, these wild flights of fancy. So it's, yeah, I think it's kind of on a personal level, this a sort of divide, internal divide about who you want to be and where you want to let your imagination mm-hmm. go. There's a kind of political element here as well of existing in opposition to others who don't see your world of view, your, your point of view, your worldview, point of view, <laughs> and kind of wrestling with that the whole way through. But of course, most of the, of the other characters also have dual identities. Yes. Or mm-hmm. in some cases, and there's overlap with, with these ideas as well. And then others are, are not <laughs> part of I think, the paradigm, but the main one certainly is students own. So. so the book is non-linear to put it lightly, (laughs) characters exist simultaneously at different ages, the dead are alive, the narrator meets Leonardo da Vinci, he turns into a water lily. (laughs) Why do you think Sokolov wanted to disrupt our rational mind, our our linear way of looking at life so drastically? And how did that respond to the officially sanctioned literature of his time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's at the core here. I 
can't speak for him. I, I can't say exactly why necessarily. Mm. I, I think it is part of his artistic mission, right? So he's he's written about the the, the fact that he wants to develop the the how rather than the the what. So it's mm-hmm. art or art fake mm. that he's interested in artists who are concerned with form rather than content. So A meets B, B falls in love with C, etc. Matters not at all to him. It's more about how you put this into a text and structure it and experiment with the possibilities of language. And so everything here in School for Fools, as well as the other books, I think is just so tightly intertwined. The, the themes of madness and creativity as opposed to reason obviously find a reflection in the, the character who, who has this struggle, but it's also in the language and in the way things are narrated. I love those those moments. I don't have it on hand, maybe one of you does, but where he, he uses the past, present, and future. Yes, I love that as well. I was sailing, I am sailing. He loves to do little plays on words like that. And... Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I, it, on a even just a I don't know, personal emotional level, I, I kind of love that, right? Why, why mm-hmm. do we have to yeah. imagine time as linear? We can imagine conversations with dead people, <laughs> with, with lost ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the sixth sense or something, but... <laughs> Anyway, the idea that he, that he presents in the book, the metaphor, the image he uses is that life is, everyone has it, their own calendar. It's a series of dots on a page. Instead mm-hmm. of one after the other, you can just jump from one to the other. And I appreciate that. I don't know. Imagining what my daughters are like in 20 years. Imagine them at that point sure. or, or something from the past and not limiting yourself to a chain of events that's, that's totally logical and, and rational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how how rational is rationality? You know, like, is rationality even the most rational thing? Perhaps not. You know, what, what do we really understand of time? Like, it, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's at a time period when, like, science and things are growing and people are maybe shedding older conceptions of religion mm-hmm. and society. And it also just has a very, like, viscerally relatable feeling like we can like memory is something that comes up and how we are our own memories and sometimes a memory is stronger than the actual present tense of that moment Mm -hmm. and in writing like I often find if I'm writing about something from the past I feel more present in it than I did when that was present so it's also just very relatable even if it seems off the wall and crazy for sure what were some of the breaks in time that you found most effective? Chapter two, for sure. But another one that comes to mind is when he, okay, two things <laughs> come to mind. One okay. is when he, I believe he opens a door and enters Leonardo's, Da Vinci's uh, workshop. And <laughs> <laughs> transforms here. And, and maybe we should say that there's Leonardo da Vinci, but he's also Akatov, Arkady Akatov, the, biologist yes who lives in the same dacha settlement and he it's vieta's father so there's like there's a connection to, to the more realistic <laughs> right of the book but yeah he, he opens up and then has this conversation with da vinci and gives him some advice on the mona lisa painting which is <laughs> here based on vieta and her smile i also really appreciate i guess the there's a running motif or a running sequence conversation, I guess, I don't know, with student so-and-so and his mother on a train yes. as he's going to a music lesson, accordion lesson. 
and it appears a few times throughout the book, each time kind of with more detail. And each of these scenes, again, add something. And there's one where he, they, they also go visit his grandmother's grave. Mm-hmm. There's a description of an angel statue and all sorts of stuff <laughs> thrown into, into all, of, <laughs> all of these these moments. But but those are a couple that come to mind. Were there, were there some that stuck with you guys? I think now's a really good time to sort of talk about chapter two, I think, in some sure. detail. Okay. Because it's been mentioned a few times now. So unlike... Chapters one, three, four, and five, where it is sort of the narrator slash narrators jumping around and trying to understand the world around them. Chapter two is broken up into a bunch of different short stories, each one somewhat progressing this like concept of the girl and student so-and-so's sort of relationship to the world. I found that such a great transition to get into the mind of this breaking timelines and how you know all of these are separate stories but all of them are are fitting together Mm -hmm. how how do you read chapter two i think in a number of ways i i can't make up my mind about it it's it's so fascinating (laughs) it seems to have a hold on you yeah 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 i think so (laughs) (laughs) i read it too in connection to in ulysses the wandering rocks episode Mm. of ulysses with the vignettes Mm. these short pieces that have connections between them and have connections to the rest of the narrative. And that's essentially what we have here is there are certain characters in chapter two that you can connect outside of the narrative. There's yes. glass worker, there's references to uh, excavator operator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's ways to read the girl who appears, the young woman who appears in the first vignette of chapter two. And then at the end, she's she's died in a car accident as Vietka, or at least some sort of overlap yeah that was definitely the way i took it yeah it was sort of like the narrative thread of this short stories yeah so i guess it's it's a sort of refraction or alternative perspective on on the rest of the novel Mm -hmm. there's you know constantly this mirroring happening throughout the whole book that the character is a reflection of another is a piece of another there are these alternative identities as as we've talked about Um, so i think that that's going on here but the, the question is who who wrote these stories there the, the chapter title is mm. stories and translation stories written on the veranda yeah exactly. the, the story is written on the now the story is written on the veranda <laughs> so you can look at it as the students students yeah. have stories he's reflecting yes. back he's come back from military service and he was, he was released early because of some accident radiation related thing and <laughs> Now he's writing about these, but the tone of all the vignettes is all over the place. It's there's some that are more colloquial, conversational. Others are more similar to the rest of the narrative. So that's one option, or a second option, I guess. And, the, and another one is that it's another narrator or the author who is also a character in the book. He talks to the hero yeah. at certain points. The kind of arranger who operates above everything and puts all the pieces together. I don't know. I don't think I, I haven't settled on one. <laughs> one interpretation myself of course mm-hmm. and we probably shouldn't be settled on a single interpretation no matter what on the sort of writing style that is presented yeah. I, I i would imagine sokolov also has alternative <laughs> perspectives as well not, yeah not one single one well this technique of enclosing stories within stories is also in the other chapters too the one that really sticks up to me is that fable about the carpenter in the desert that was the one i was wanting to talk about right now which is insane yeah it's like 
an episode of the Twilight Zone, yeah. <laughs> really, to me. Like, I was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> and it has a very religious tone to it, which we do see quotes from the Bible throughout. And I think one of the, ep- one of the three epigraphs is from the Bible, I believe. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that one? I, I also really love it <laughs> and appreciate <laughs> it. You know, feel free to correct me or, or fill in the gaps here. But the, the story of the parable is that a carpenter kind of sells out, I guess, to put it. <laughs> yeah. Builds his own cross and then gets crucified on it. And he also has the ability to, to transform into a bird. Which has that same sort of imagery of like a splayed out. Yeah. Your arms wide. Right. Is what I imagined. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but tied down, not not able to fly. Yeah, exactly. It's the it's complete opposite ways you can have that sort of form. Yeah. With your arms splayed out. One is repressed and one is flying free exactly yeah i think one way to look at it is as a political parable that Mm -hmm. at this time in the soviet union soviet union in general right selling out your art for works that you don't actually believe in you know just producing Mm -hmm. things that will get published that you don't have to send abroad or or distribute and and self-publish samizdat and spread on the underground when you have a craft and you have this ability to transform the world or transform yourself and fly off like a bird, mm-hmm. like the carpenter, like Sokolov. That is what Sokolov wants and wants to do mm-hmm. and is encouraging, I think. It, it's sort of sounding like I'm reducing it to a simple message. I, I, I don't think that's mm-hmm. writers sure. like Sokolov. Sure, that's sure. That's one, one reading, reading of it, I think. And, and finally, I, I just really appreciate his, his bird imagery. He uses birds all the yeah. time. I love the land of the goat sucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you know? Do you know about goat suckers? Did you look them up? I'm a I'm a bird watcher, so I know nice. I, I I can pick up on all the the bird terminology. That's about the thing I understand the most in this book is the bird terminology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I love goat suckers, and they're such strange and creepy and fascinating birds. And they mm-hmm. they fly. I think they're named goat suckers because they fly very similarly to bats with sort of that jagged oh, yeah. flight around pattern. And so as bats were thought of as like these things that would suck the blood out of your farm animals. I think right. that's where the name came from. But, you know, goat suckers themselves are just nocturnal little feet on, on bugs. And yeah. I, I, I kind of wondered if this sort of like warped landscape is because like the idea of a goat sucker is completely incorrect and is a warped idea of language and visualization itself. But I don't know. I can read more into the bird stuff than I can with other <laughs> things. So that's why I was really into that. Yeah. Have you seen a, a, a nightjar or a goat sucker in person? Yeah, of course. Do, do you have them there? Oh, yeah. We have uh, we have a few different kinds. We have a common poor will. We have whip, we have a Mexican whipper will. I think those are the main two. There's You can get a lesser form if you go out east. <laughs> okay. You look hard enough, which it's always fun when I go out into eastern New Mexico. I can... Uh-huh. I can go see some wow, of them okay. sometimes. Are they around here? This this podcast is shifting into unburied birds, but <laughs> <laughs> are they are they are they here in in Philadelphia on the East Coast? Yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay. pretty sure. Wow, I need to look harder. Okay. At least Common Porwell, I think, range is very wide across the United States. He's gonna pull up the eBird heat map. I know. <laughs> While you do that, I think, you know, I think... Oh, no, it's mainly Western. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's night jars out there. <laughs> I, I, think the, I think you're right about the, the kind of transformation and distortion thing going on there. Um, it's also the, the land of the lonely goat suckers, so something that's unusual and odd and apart, just like student so-and-so. Mm. And then all throughout, there's a kind of 
folklore element uh-huh. and the goat sucker is the kind of legend or myth about a goat blood sucking bird <laughs> that's another facet of of the folklore and, and tales that Sokolov is incorporating yeah You'll definitely get Eastern Whippoorwill out there. Okay. I don't know the Eastern U.S. birds as well as I do the Western. You might also get Chuckwell's Widow, which is one of my favorite bird names. Uh-huh. It is a great name. Which it, it, it's because it's it's call is you can sort of in a very Sokolov way like translate how they call to being Chuckwell's Widow. Uh-huh. Can we add a little uh, Chuckwell's Widow call at this part of the podcast? Because mm-hmm. they kind of go Chuckwell. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, to tie it back into the to the book. Sorry, that was my bad digression. <laughs> we see the it repeats vowel sounds. Mm-hmm. So it'll say a a a e e e e o o o in a kind of animalistic fashion. Did you have a particular view on that? Yeah, so this is a number of things. It's the the train sounds that he hears and represents in the narrative with e e e's. In English and in Russian, e, which is like the equivalent of an i. There's also the the scream. He screams into rain barrels, mm-hmm. student so and so, and lets out this yell. And then the train, right, makes the sounds as it approaches. Yeah, I think again, I, I'm repeating myself here. There's the the play with language certainly, but like you're saying, Kasia, the kind of a- animalistic quality here, this sort of cry of irrationality and freedom imagination i think is this this is another facet of that that student so-and-so just lets loose and doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be kept down and his voice and this non-standard i guess way of uh, expression needs to be let loose Mm -hmm. talking about that besides the double narrator himself there are a lot of secondary characters that sort of populate this demented time warp book that are also very interesting for example, just a couple ones. We have we have Vieta, we mentioned the biology teacher who the narrator's in love with. We have McKeeve, who is the bicycle riding postman, who is one of my favorite guys that showed up in the book. Um, there's also his parents who are very different to sort of the other characters and many other more. And to tie it to the cover, right, when we talk about these repeating vowel sounds that some of the characters make, I, I, I could see these characters as the beasts in the landscape. And I sometimes almost yeah. visualize them as such because it, that's just so burned into my mind. Covers always get stuck there. Uh-huh. How do you see all these characters adding into the narrative and, and who stood out the most to you? I think the the mailman, the postman. He's so funny. Who's also known as Smudyejev. Yes. <laughs> that's the other thing is I'm trying to like say like a character's name and there's like, oh, there's like at least two or three other names. That they-, <laughs> they have four names. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, this postman with a long beard. There's this incredible scene. I, I should have uh, should have marked which page it's on, but he kind of brushes along some dandelions, and it, they all float around him. Oh, that part's so good. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful, and the wind flows through his beard, and the, the residents think that he's. They kind of see him as producing, generating the wind itself. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's another <laughs> key theme and key image here: the wind, right? That the the wind. Is, a force of change and a force of freedom and inspiration for students so and so and some of the other characters uh pavel savel his his teacher norvega love pavel savel yeah he's another one and and i can mention here real quick that's another case of the the sounds being really critical so in russian okay wind is yeter so it's v-e-t-e-r and if you look at certain characters names the so-called positive ones the ones who are helpful i guess to to the hero there's mm. Narviegov, so the V 
part of Yeter is incorporated into his name. I see. Uh, Medvedev also has that in there. Rosa, who's the mm. his classmate who dies at some point, um, <laughs> is also the love of his teacher. Her last name is Vietrova. Mm. So there's the, the sound and the letters. I get you. Okay. The wind is incorporated into multiple characters' names. That's really cool. It's all, all in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the wind was very spiritual and you use the word sweet that the book was sweet and i wouldn't have called it that necessarily but it is there's a a hopefulness to that image despite some of the the darkness and criticism that it has for society yeah no and and, and the dandelions that he's describing are like inherently dead they are things that are not alive anymore because that's dandelions will die and then their seeds are what are blown out into the landscape so it is sort of this cyclical life and death Mm -hmm. what is the beginning and what is the end sort of thing and that was something i was picturing on that and also i'm gonna give a little shout out here but like cassia's book that she just finished her second draft of last night also ends with an imagery of wind that reminded me a lot of the dandelion one does and so i I didn't know if you meant to do that personally because we were reading this at the same point but i saw it very similar louis to the way i saw the dandelion thing with uh mckeeve yeah it may have seeped in yeah may have blown in (laughs) through the window Congrats on the second the second draft, you said. Thank you, yes. So lastly, one of the features that grounds this book, despite the wordplay and the chaos, is the narrator's very real and very human desires. And we've kind of talked about this. Uh, he wants the woman he likes to like him back, and he wants to be accepted by his family and in the wider community if he can't cut it as an engineer. I saw the narrator's pursuit of love and acceptance as a handrail to grasp onto amid the madness. And it was something that sort of made the book whole in something that is very fractured. Was that something that made the book whole to you as well? And if not, what what sort of was the thing that sort of brought it all together? I, I think so. Structurally speaking, the, the whole book, you know, you can look at as coming entirely from students so-and-so, these imagined conversations, and in particular, a conversation he has with Akatov, and then a conversation he has with Norvegov, his teacher, Pavel Savel, again, in the bathroom of the school as, as Pavel kind of sits up with his feet resting on the heater. And that conversation, part of that conversation, he wants to, to learn about sex. He needs a lesson in sex. Yes. <laughs> yeah, have you been with women? Can you tell me about it? And he receives a book from his teacher. I don't know what kind of school this is. And then, uh, <laughs> and then in the other conversation, of course, he's approaching a cop of the, the scientist, the Da Vinci parallel to ask for get the hand in marriage. So I think, yeah, it's it's all in you know one reading it's all about love and this desire to have some sort of connection physical intimacy with Vietka with with someone else and even in in part two chapter two the the stories on the veranda it begins with this young man who steals up to this girl he has a crush on but she doesn't really know him her window and kind of imagining life with her and then at the end he uh, is working as a morgue attendant and finds that she's one of his corpses. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> she's there. She's been in an accident. And and that to me is, again, a kind of parallel here that he imagines this ideal love and ideal connection with this girl. And at the end of chapter two, he, he finally encounters her body. It's just not the form he wants. She's she's died. Yeah. Mm. In this car accident, but the, the kind of barrier, the protective barrier in a way, and the ideal romanticized barrier of the window is, is gone. He has to kind of face reality. And it's a harsh and cruel one. She's, she's dead on, on his table. 
but the whole book, I think, in some ways, is is about this desire to to make connection and to turn the ideal into the real, and that can be language into something that's embodied and physical and takes a life of its own. It can be love from your crush and your desire to actually being with someone, and many other things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think you're onto something with this this reading. Good, and, I hope so. <laughs> too, and, and, and I appreciate that there's, there's there's something tender and sweet about about the book. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, I do love in the chap in the second chapter the the weird digression where he gets to where he's like I love that my girlfriend's mom like works on the docks and these mm-hmm. he likes I love the boats I see the boats and that's my <laughs> right that's my girlfriend's mom <laughs> <laughs> the, the digressions are the best I think in the yeah. the whole book is a digression it seems like it's true <laughs> yeah you talked a little bit about the folklore influences that mm-hmm. that come through the text. And it is the school for fools. And I know that people have mentioned the Ivan the Fool story, which mm-hmm. is like a brother who's the foolish brother and all his other brothers are more wise, but he ends up, of course, being the, the wisest one in the end. Did you have an opinion on the title, A School for Fools, and the choice to lasso all of these different ideas and concepts together under the school house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've been curious about this. And I, I don't know if anyone has written about it, the kind of school theme in, in literature, yeah. or Russian literature in, in particular, mm-hmm. um, or like students and, and teachers, I think that'd be something someone should do, I don't know, me at some point. But <laughs> I think w- one way to look at it certainly is that this is, well, it's a young man, he's learning lessons about love, about sex, about death. So it makes sense, right? That life as a kind of school that, that you're going through. And it's a school for fools because it's the Soviet Union and it's a foolish place with too many rules and rules that restrict people's freedom and imagination. And Sokolov, I think, is wrestling with that as well. One thing that I've wrestled with and, and thought about is the translation, right? Rus- Russian doesn't have articles. There's no D or A. Mm. Mm, okay. It was a choice in the first translator, which was Carl Proffer, the publisher of Artists, the head there. It just, from the beginning, has been called A School for Fools. And I wonder if the School for Fools would make more sense or simply for fools mm. another i guess another going back to that question another translation question <laughs> if it's mm-hmm. one among many school for fools and you know I, I think that speaks to the universality of of the lessons here in this book so to speak sure but maybe these schools would be more appropriate for it's grounding it in the particular context mm-hmm. mm. are there any other points that we didn't get to that you'd want to bring up i made a list and i think i think that I think we hit them all. These are the, yes. the hits. Of a, Yay! <laughs> did our job. Yeah, I, did, I just think Sokolov is an amazing writer, and his biography, as you know, we got a taste of earlier, is also is, is, someone should write a novel about it. He, yeah, I, I don't think yeah. you mentioned he tried to flee the Soviet Union on foot through through Iran. Yeah, yeah. Did you mention that? I alluded to it. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's been a ski instructor. He's incredibly. <laughs> I'd definitely go skiing more if I could go with Sokolov. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. I know people were were excited about this one, and it could be a hard sell for some people who are looking for that A to B to C type of mm-hmm. book. But I hope we've done a good job of communicating the universality of it and how relatable it can be if you're if you're willing to get aboard the roller coaster of Russian to English translation. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so too. I I, I just think it's a uh... Among everything else, or along with everything else. It's a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. And thank, thanks very much for, for having me. Thank you. What a wonderful discussion that was. I think it helped me process the book a lot better. It's a book that needs to be digested. Yeah. I would like to read it again and see what I can pull out of it more a second time and a third time. Right. I wish I could have read this book in Dublin. Pretty jealous. Yeah, I feel like that'd be a great place. Jose really had it made in that sense. Yeah. Our next book, whatever it is, we'll just fly to Dublin and read it there. (laughs) Sounds really nice. If any listeners want to hook us up. Yeah. If you could pay for that trip. Yeah, you don't have to pay for the trip, but if you want to send some Dramamine our way. (laughs) That would help a lot. That'd be awesome. That'd be super helpful. That stuff is shockingly expensive, actually. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss In a Lonely Place by Dorothy B. Hughes. Leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It's really helpful. As well, you can check out our digital bookshop. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And you can even email us at unburiedbooks at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Oh, we should mention that we did get an email from somebody. Yeah, we got an email from someone named L. Left a really nice, positive email for us. Just saying they're a big fan. That meant a lot. So Shout out to Elle. So Thank you, Elle. Love to hear more from you guys. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.